Vallahi bana her şey yumuş geldi. Namaste, it is 8.30, we will begin in a second, this is Pankaj Jain, we will discuss about Dharma and Ecology, my first book, in a second. Eight thirty now. Let's wait for a few more minutes and then we'll start. Must be very warm there in India. July just started. Pretty warm here in Texas as well now. So it's now 8:31. That's a couple of minutes. Couple of more minutes. Uh, 
Okay, Dimpleji is telling me it's raining there back uh, in Delhi, I think. Are you in Delhi, Dimpleji? In Texas here, there is no season for, there is no fixed season for rain really. So it intermittently, it, it's pretty warm and then it becomes, it starts raining. And so it's really back and forth here in, uh, in Texas. Uh, yesterday we celebrated here Independence Day in Texas. Uh, so Indian Independence is August 15th in America, July 4th, but because of the weekend, there was there were fireworks and all kinds of festivities last night here in Dallas area where I live. And uh, so now Sunday morning, July 2nd, and doing this uh, Facebook like for the Facebook Live for the first time. Uh, so we'll discuss uh, two of my books that have been out uh, in last uh, seven years uh, now, six years. And uh, the first edition of the first book was released back in 2011 uh, by Ashgate. Uh, it's a publisher in, in England called Ashgate. And eventually that Ashgate was bought over by Routledge. And Routledge recently released a new edition in India. Uh, with Manohar books and that has come out I think just within last couple of months so this Facebook live is in line with the new edition of the first book in India uh, the title of the book is Dharma and Ecology Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities and uh, colon sustenance and sustainability the book is based on my research during my PhD in at the University of Iowa. And the topic of the book, as the name tells, is Dharma and Ecology, or in Hindi, Dharma, Dharma or Paryavaran, Hindu community, Hindu samudayon ka, ka Dharma or Paryavaran. So uh, in that research, I focused on three communities in India. Uh, one in Rajasthan called the Bishnoi community which is spread across Rajasthan uh, on the border of India-Pakistan uh, in the desert area called Thar Desert, the Great Desert of India, Thar. Uh, it's called as the Great Desert of India, Thar. Uh, the second community that I focused in the book is the Swadhyay Parivar that is spread in Gujarat, Maharashtra, a uh, little bit Madhya Pradesh and many other parts of India, uh, including Haryana, even uh, Rajasthan a little bit. And then the third community that I focused was the Bheels of also spread across Rajasthan, Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh and so So these are the three communities that um, were not really covered in, uh, deeply in any, other, in any of the other earlier scholarly literature. So to make my claims or to discuss anything about Dharma and ecology, when we say anything with on the ground evidences, then it carries weight. Uh, it carries some, some meaning. Otherwise, to say that Hinduism is very eco-friendly religion or eco-friendly tradition, and we just quote some uh, shloka, some verses from Veda, Upanishad, Bhagavad Gita, or Puran, and on the ground what we see in India is that Ganga is polluted, Himalaya forests uh, across India are being destroyed, or, uh, or air quality in Mumbai and Delhi is, is just unbreathable, literally, literally. Uh, so it doesn't really match to say Hinduism is a very eco-friendly 
and on the ground realities is so uh, difficult, uh, environmentally speaking, it doesn't really match. So how do we present an alternative uh, picture or, or a picture that is not really literally polluted by the modern industrial uh, phenomena across India, but where uh, industries have not yet so deeply reached and, and modernity so-called has not yet more, uh, deeply reached and people are still living their traditional lives that they were living for hundreds or thousands of years in villages. That's where I found these, these powerful examples where the people are still uh, consider saving the trees, saving animals, bird, uh, birds, saving wildlife, flora and fauna uh, as part of not to fight climate change, but to part of their life. To save a tree, to save a bird, to save an animal is not because they want to, they're interested in saving the biodiversity or they are trying to fight the climate change. No, none of that. They have not even heard these names, climate change, global warming, biodiversity loss or whatever. They just do, they do it just because it's part of their tradition, it's part their, of their religious teachings by their guru, or it's part of their, their life. It's their way of life, literally. It's just who they are, how they live their life, and that's doing uh, these things for the so-called for the environment. It's, it's not for the environment, but for the dharma, for their life. That was the whole argument that I wanted to make, that in, unlike Western traditions or Western life where there are clear segments of religion that you do either on Saturday or Sunday or maybe Friday in some religions and then and then you come out of the your religious uh, place of worship and then you lead your normal so-called secular life. But in, for these traditional communities, uh, Swadhyayas, Vishnuis and Bheels, there is no such uh, watertight compartment where religion is just one compartment of their life and rest of the life has no really uh, manifestation of any of the religious inspiration. So that to critique that compartmentalizing of religion and secularity, uh, my, I wanted to make the argument that, that uh, to live an ethical life, to live a spiritual life, to live an environmental friendly life does not have to be three separate compartments. They are all three intertwined phenomena in these three, in, in these communities. So this one word of dharma means ethics, as we all know, uh, in our uh, Indian languages. But to make this argument in English, I had to use the Indian term dharma, not religion, because religion then makes this division of religion and secularity, uh, religion and, and uh, non-religion. Uh, instead of that, instead of that dichotomy, the word that, that I use and that we use every day in, in daily life is dharma. Dharma already has the meanings of ethics and morality. Dharma already has the meaning of sustenance and sustainability. And Dharma already has the meaning of, of course, the spirituality and spiritual life. Now, Dharma and spirituality is pretty obvious to all of us. We know that Dharma is what we do in, in temples or, uh, or, or what we do in pilgrimage uh, or Dharma as we do in fasting. That's all part of Dharma. We also know that Dharma it does include morality and ethics. So uh, satya and uh, truth and uh, aste or non-stealing and so many other things that are so that are usually called as morality or, or ethics are part of dharma. That also makes sense to us, I think. But dharma as sustainability or dharma as sustenance, sustenance, that may not be that obvious. So just to summarize what I said so far, dharma has three 
meanings and all three are intertwined. Dharma is religion, dharma is ethics, and dharma is sustainability. Spiritual life, ethical life, and environmental friendly life. All three are, can be based on this one word, dharma. So dharma is spirituality already makes sense. Dharma as ethics does make sense, but dharma is sustainability or sustenance may not be that obvious. So how does that work? How, how did I conclude that? So to, to explain that, we just need to go back, to, go to the root of the word dharma. Dharma comes from the root, as I think many of us also know, from the root dhri. Dhri means to sustain. Dharma comes from the Sanskrit root dhri, which means to sustain. Now sustain obviously makes connection with sustainability and sustenance. So dharma, what is it trying to sustain? When, when we say dharma comes from the root dhri, what, are, what exactly is trying to sustain? Dharma sustains the, all the phenomena in the cosmic world, all the planets and sun and stars and everything is sustained by their dharma. Dharma of the sun, dharma of the uh, earth, dharma of the fire, dharma of the water, dharma of the trees. So every entity in the cosmos, in the universe is sustained by dharma, right? So that's the sustainability of the planets and the cosmic uh, entities. But dharma also means that which sustains life on our planet where we live. So human affairs are also sustained by dharma, dharma of the human beings. Manushya dharma, Surya dharma, Agni dharma, Vriksha dharma and so on. So that's how dharma contains the roots of the word sustainability and sustenance. So this connection uh, for the first time you find this connection in my book, Dharma and Ecology. That's why the title is Dharma and Ecology. So it can be read as Dharma and Ecology of the Hindu communities. So both are intertwined. Or we can say Dharma and Ecology of Hindu communities. So, so I'm describing all these things in a very intertwined way in the book. And uh, uh, I start with the critique of the existing literature that says some of the uh, articles and books that I critique, uh, they say that... Uh, because of the modern problems in, in Ganga and, and Himalaya and forests and the air quality in Mumbai and Delhi, for example, uh, Dharma is actually anti-environment. There are some books, there were some books in the late 90s, uh, some articles and books which said those kind of things. So in my early chapter in, the, in my book, I critique that literature and I say that, uh, so argument that they make is that uh, because uh, especially Advait Vedanta says that Brahma uh, Satyam and Jagat Mithya, right? In Advait, Advait Vedanta. So, but the, so from that they extended and made the argument that because Advait Vedanta says that only Brahma is Satyam and Jagat is Mithya, so Hinduism doesn't even care if the world is going to hell, if the, if the air quality is becoming polluted and so on, if water is becoming more polluted, Hindus have no concern with that because it, this is all illusion and false anyway. So Hinduism can never be environmental friendly. That was one kind of an argument made by other scholars. So in initial uh, few chapters, I critique the existing literature. Then I go on to my own research uh, and, and then I make my claims based on the observation that I saw on the ground. I went to these villages in Rajasthan and Gujarat. Uh, where Vishnuis live, where Bhils live, where Swadhyayis live, and uh, based on those, on the ground, what, what are called as uh, objective and uh, 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 objective observations, 
based on those observations, I made my, my conclusions. And then in my, after completing these three uh, chapters on Vishnu is one chapter, so there is one chapter, he is one chapter, I make, uh, I, I write another chapter focusing only on dharma, dharma as environmental ethos of Indian communities, Hindu communities, and then finally conclusion and how dharma is different from religion and how dharma does work for these communities and, may, and dharma can work for other communities also in India where, uh, where these values have to be re-inspired, re, uh, re rejuvenated for, for all, the, all of the rest of the uh, Hindu communities across uh, Mumbai and Delhi and Varanasi and, and it, can, it can still protect and save Ganga and, and forests and so on. So that's kind of summary of my first book and uh, I'm happy to uh, uh, take your questions. Uh, you can type uh, in the comments. Uh, I see a lot of people have joined uh, and uh, would love to take more of questions. I'll read the question that you type here and then I'll, I'll, I'll respond. So there was the first book. Uh, uh, again, I completed my PhD from University of Iowa uh, where uh, I started back in 2004, uh, more than 10 years or so more than a decade now. Uh, where I was looking for, I uh, was looking for a topic to start writing my dissertation, and uh, I was uh, experimenting with different fields, linguistics and psychology, and uh, of course religious studies, where my department was based, uh, and and many film studies. I even experimented with all those things, and and then all those departments and disciplines, and then I was looking. For, I thought that I should choose a topic that is relevant with contemporary problems, which is environmental studies, environment ecology and how spiritual traditions or religious traditions of India can make a contribution and how they can be relevant for modern times. So that's how I then I concluded that I'll take environmental studies as my uh, research topic. And then I uh, went to India and did my field work back uh, in Rajasthan, Gujarat and, and Mumbai and so on. And then that's, that became my PhD dissertation when we completed in 2008, published the book in 20, late 2010, 10, 2011 uh, with Ashkate. And, uh, and uh, now just this year in 2017, Routledge, which has acquired Ashgate, has come up with a new edition in India, which is available from manoharbooks.com. Uh, and uh, so that has just come in India uh, just this year. So we are doing this Facebook Live, kind of relaunching my first book in India. Uh, so in the last six years, that book has been out. I'm very, very happy and blessed and pleased to share that uh, the book has now reached more than 1,000 libraries across the world. Uh, there is a website called worldcat.org, which maybe I'll type here, uh, in which if you uh, search the, this book's title, you'll see that it, the book has, is part of now more than 1,000 libraries across the world, Australia, New Zealand, and Africa, Europe, uh, India, of course, and, uh, and, uh, and almost all major university libraries in this country, Canada, uh, all across the world, anywhere, any course that is taught, which is on religion and ecology, my book becomes one of the textbooks, uh, which uh, when we, when scholars or anybody teaches uh, or any course on religion and ecology, my book becomes the kind of the textbook to that focuses on Hinduism and ecology. So because the title is Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities is broad enough. So that's how uh, one small contribution from from dharma from hindu hindu side uh, to portray the that hinduism is not just about uh, worshiping the cows worshiping the it is about worshiping the cows and worshiping even the snakes in one of the rajasthan temples for example hinduism does 
celebrate the spirituality inherent in Himalayan forests and all the rivers and, and whatnot. But uh, it is not just rituals, but it is also the ethical values, the worldview that is inbuilt into dharma that has sustained the spiritual and environmental resources in India for thousands of years. And if given the right uh, opportunity, given the right momentum, given the right importance, dharma can still work for the rest of the cities that have pollution problems. Uh, it is just a matter of going back to dharma and trying to relive those teachings and it can work. Let me read a question here uh, from Srinivasji. Uh, question, aren't there enough ideas already on ecological sustainability? What new ideas does dharma bring that are not already known to the current world? Right, so, so the question is, what new does dharma bring to the current world? Uh, see here there is a disconnect between the two in the consciousness of majority Especially from urban background for example they worship and birth in Banganga yet polluted without realizing reverence and protection are two aspects of same coin what is in your opinion has caused this disconnect yes um, yeah I think uh, when the limited interpretation of dharma is taken which basically takes dharma only as a ritual and forgetting or ignoring the, the three intertwined uh, meanings of dharma, that's where uh, the problem starts, problems are happening. For example, if we just take the, if we just go to, uh, let's say if somebody wants to go to Badrinath or Kedarnath, uh, so they just go, uh, take the car, go to Badrinath, have their darshan and, and come back without ever appreciating the surrounding environment, which is beyond words, which is, more beautiful than paradise, uh, Kedarnath, if you go on the, on the top, all the way top, and take a look. And if we, if we don't appreciate why those temples were built on mountains, was Darshan just one part of the entire journey or was Darshan only the focus? If that's where the right worldview has to be inspired, that the, 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 the temples happen across uh, the, on the banks of major rivers or temples happen, uh, exist on the mountains, probably because our sages, our rishis wanted us to connect with the environment, with the nature. And that's how religion and ecology are intertwined in Indian tradition. That's how we have to uh, kind of relive and remind ourselves that uh, dharma cannot be separate from ecology. Dharma is ecology, ecology is dharma. That's, where, that's what has to be, I think, reignited in our minds and to, uh, to save the existing uh, environmental resources that, that we have in India. And that, that has to be done by our all our religious spiritual leaders, gurus, uh, and, and many are doing already, as, as I portray in my book, Swadhyay uh, and Vishnu and Gilles, how they succeeded in uh, re-inspiring their people. Let's see more question. How did you take uh, to dharma as a study and were your parents supportive of such a career choice? So I came to America with my wife back in 1996 as an IT professional. I came on H1B visa to New Jersey, worked for IBM and Lewis and AT&T and all the rest, uh, but uh, was not really happy with my that career and uh, was looking for a way to choose a career that is in line with my passions of Sanskrit and Dharma studies and humanities and which can be hopefully be uh, some little humble com contribution for our culture. And that's how I uh, tried to experiment with uh, with a, with, with a, first I did masters 
at Columbia in New York, Columbia University in New York. And after master's, I went back to IT for one year, got rid of all the student debt that I had from Columbia and kept applying for PhD uh, and got into PhD, but no funding uh, still. Uh, and then eventually I, I also received uh, a teaching assistantship at Iowa uh, with my uh, blessings from my advisor, Pratik Smith. And then uh, and eventually as I kept taking step by step and finally uh, got the tenure track position, gainful employment as they say, and it worked out. And uh, yes, parents were apprehensive and, and that's, that's one issue also, I think most of our, uh, most of us, I think, uh, like somebody else take doing all these things, but our kids should choose money-making careers, lucrative careers. We, we have to really inspire our kids to choose humanities as their career. That's the only way we can uh, reignite these passions, spiritual passions and academic passions in our own kids. And that's what can save the spiritual and ethical environmental resources in India and elsewhere. So that's what we have to I think go back and, and inspire more people. Let's let me read a question from Professor Subhash Kak, my senior here in neighboring state of Oklahoma. You see, in your role as an academic in the West, it is hard to fight the entrenched misconceptions about the dharmic ecological view. And what about the challenge in India where there is great urge to copy the West in its attempts to dominate nature? Yes, I I share that concern, Professor Kak, uh, Professor Subhash Kak, and uh, yes, uh, it's very sad uh, to see that, uh, especially in I think uh, in the leadership uh, of uh, in in the urban setting in India, there seems to be a great push towards uh, mimicking the West. So let's instead of very proudly and very confidently making an Indian statement that India will remain India, in India will never become a poor copy of America or China. We are, we seem to be in many circles in India, are taking the, all the wrong examples from China and or America or, or other European nations, which is, which is, uh, which is a tragedy. Uh, unless we take up the pride and confidence and not just false pride and false confidence, but the examples, the powerful examples of survival and how people have flourished despite all kinds of problems, how people have flourished and taken uh, the ancient teachings into modern context, which I share in my first book, uh, Fathyas and Vishnois and, and Bheels, how they have taken those traditions and put into the modern context, how Fathyas, for example, uh, so Fathya founder and, and the teacher, leader, uh, Guru, Panarang Shasi, Arthadaji, Dadaji, he just didn't speak, he, he just didn't give Provachans on Vedas and Upanishads and Gita, but inspired his followers, his practitioners, or their practitioners, to build new tree temples. So there is a concept in, in our tradition called sacred grove. Sacred grove. Sacred groves are parts of the forest, as I'm sure many of you already, many of you already know. Sacred groves have been existing across the world and many thousands and thousands in India. The parts of the forest were reserved because those parts of the forest were spiritual uh, temples. Those were the temples. So we had these ancient examples where people would never cut a single tree, single branch from the trees, from the sacred groves. Uh, but what Swadhyayas did, Swadhyayas did is construct new sacred groves, which I think is a unique example in, in modern Indian uh, uh, contemporary society. So they have built more than, I think, I believe three dozen new tree temples across Gujarat, where parts of the village land is taken is bought over by the by the village as a, as a whole 
and that land is cultivated by villagers of that village and whatever uh, fruits or whatever crops that they get from those farms or those orchards gardens those products are sold in the market but not for for earning profit that 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 money is is literally revered as mahalakshmi so that mahalakshmi is is reserved for constructing new tree temples new such experiments and uh, part of the money is very silently very very gracefully very respectfully shared with people in the village who might need some widow or orphan or or handicapped disabled people so so these kind of ancient examples put in modern context uh, that has been done that is being done by some of the spiritual leaders in across india but a lot more has to be done i agree and uh, if we just you know keep cutting keep clear cutting the trees and forests and keep creating more shopping malls in india shopping malls are closing here in this country in america because people don't like to go to shopping mall they want to do their shopping online so shopping malls are closing down in america and in india there is in the name of modernity or i don't know what the, the, the people are uh, if they are interested in building more malls it's a tragedy and that's where i think we will destroy our whatever resources that we have we still have it's not that we have lost everything we still have lot that we can still preserve and, and keep our uh, motherland really unique example in the world which is so populous 1.25 billion people and still when you are driving in india anywhere in india and if a cow comes on the street on, on even on the highway the traffic will stop and the cows or elephants or monkeys or or any animal will be given preference humans have no monopoly even on highways which might annoy some people who might be in rush but i was just so touched where in america even pedestrians even humans are prohibited even to enter on highways on on national highway in america you cannot enter you cannot walk on the highways but in india even on highways even elephants have equal right to humans you so so there are signs across rishikesh and haridwar in uttarakhand and where the truckers or car drivers are instructed to stop this is the time for elephants not yours you humans have no monopoly on crossing highways you need to wait for elephants you need to wait for cows you need to wait for monkeys you need to wait for for what not so biodiversity you see not just on in the forest but you see on the highways that is that unique tradition of india where uh, its it professionals are ruling googles and microsofts but yet its respects and loves and reveres its elephants not just as ganesha but it's elephants that are crossing the highways and where uh, they need to stop all right let's take more questions uh, if any uh, 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 let's see kali sudhir how can you practice dharma and also live in us is that possible all right that's an interesting question i think so uh, right so if we look at the history of dharma so question is how can you practice dharma and also live in us is that possible that's a interesting question so if we look at the history of dharmic traditions across the world we know that dharma or dharmic inspired communities of course the majority of them lived in indic civilization or indian civilization all the way from the indus valley which is harappa and mohenjodaro in modern pakistan uh, but also in nepal and of course in india and bangladesh was part of india but if we look beyond india dharmic inspired communities hindu buddhist communities also have been living for hundreds of years now in indonesia right thailand uh, mauritius 
Fiji uh, and, and, and so many other uh, islands That's, that happened because of the colonial times when people had been were moved from India to these, these islands. But even before that, for example, Indonesia and Thailand and, 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 uh, and so many other Eastern Southeast Asian countries, people have been practicing uh, their, living their life based on Hindu Buddhist principles and ideas uh, for hundreds of years. So it's not that Dharma can be practiced only in India. So it's, it's, it's a very broad setting. Dharma is not tied to one land, so to speak. People can live and have been living, even in China and Japan and Korea, where Buddhist-inspired communities have been living for now more than 2,000 years in Tibet and in China and, and other countries. Uh, but living in America is not easy based on dharma. I take your point very uh, seriously because uh, the food that we consume, uh, the milk that we consume, it's extremely difficult that uh, to, to, let's say, the the ingredients that we use for uh, in food that we, we've been using for thousands of years. We cannot imagine our food without dairy products, for example. But dairy products in, in America comes at a great cost, great violence, an unimaginable violence. I'm sure everybody knows this. I'm just re reminding and repeating. But uh, that kind of violence inherent in living uh, in this country can be a challenge. And if we are not aware, if we are not really living consciously, it is extremely difficult to live a, a totally dharmic, totally 100% non-violent life in, in this country, in America. There can be contradiction and one has to live with more awareness, more alertness, more consciousness uh, to be able to practice dharma to the spirit and letter of the word dharma with all the non-violence non and, and other tradition that we took for, for granted for thousands of years back in India because uh, Ayurveda and food were always intertwined. We didn't have to look uh, consciously your haldi and turmeric and uh, and so many other spices were part of our daily food so here we have to consciously make an effort to make sure that we stick to our indian diet uh, for the most part in the week and uh, not for example not depend on processed food or outside food so that kind of effort extra effort is needed in this country in america let's see any other example question here uh, uh, all right, from Nitin Sridhar, Dr. Jain, while the dharmic, while the dharmic worldview harmoniously integrates, integrates reverence to nature and, and protection of nature as two aspects of same ethos, as can be seen from Hindu scriptures, as well as examples of communities you mentioned in your book, there is disconnect between the two in the consciousness of majority of Hindus, especially, yeah, I think we covered already. For example, they worship and bathe in Ganga, but, and yet polluted. I think we covered that. Uh, anything else? Uh, uh, okay, we are focusing on really on Hinduism, not on, not so much in Jainism. So I'll skip that question on Jainism. Okay, so so just to people who who might have joined late, I'll, I was just summarizing uh, the story of my first book, which came out of my PhD dissertation, which focuses on Swadhyays and Vishnois and Bhils uh, in western part of India, and how they have been uh, successfully not just protecting and preserving the, the, the existing resources, but also even constructing new uh, tree temples that I mentioned, the new sacred farms that they have constructed, new water resources that they have constructed in Gujarat and Maharashtra, uh, and so on. So that, that's part of my first book that just came out recently in India. Uh, the book has already reached more than 1,000 libraries across the world. Uh, from Australia to South Af to African countries to American universities, the book has become a prerequisite to for anybody who uh, does a course on religion and ecology. My book becomes a, a textbook, so that's uh, from 
the Indic contribution to the study of religion and ecology. Uh, another question that I see here from Pramod, probably with the US pulling out of the climate pact, do you see any opportunity for India to take leadership role? Of course, India has always the opportunity to become the global leader. I think I like that word, Suriputras. Uh, we are the Suriputras, Suriwanshis. We have been worshipping, revering Surya uh, as part of our yoga, as we know, Surya Namaskar. So taking inspiration energy from Surya for the challenges facing the uh, energy crisis. That way we can take inspiration. Uh, as, as I was sharing that example of uh, uh, respecting animals in our daily life, uh, that kind of a powerful message. Uh, because animal farming, I, I think we didn't touch that aspect. So let me speak a little bit on that. Now, so worshipping animals or protecting loving animals, revering animals, was part of our tradition for thousands of years, right? Uh, years, right? So we know that we worship uh, an elephant in, in Ganesha form, uh, right? We have almost all of our gods and goddesses, Devi and Devtas, have their animals and birds as their vehicles, uh, right? We cannot imagine Durga without uh, without tiger and, and, and so on, right? And uh, uh, Vishnu without Garur. So, so all our gods and goddesses already had animals and birds and, and some other forms. But, but, but not just in symbolic form, but even on the, in real life, we, uh, if there's a Karni Mata temple in Rajasthan, like my home state. So again, I, many of you already know this, but I'm just sharing that. So even rats and mice are revered and respected in that temple. Nobody will hurt even a mouse, right? Then we have a festival such as um, Nag Panchmi, where even we, we worship even snakes. Right, Nag Panchmi, Bach Bharas, where we worship cows and calves. Right, so cattle and uh, reptiles and, and mice and, and, and many other forms we have been worshipping for thousands of years. So we know that animals are to be protected and respected and revered. But now modern science, right, United Nations funded studies have concluded that the one of the biggest or perhaps the biggest reason for climate change is not the energy choices, it's not the water wastage, but the animal farming. So thousands of acres in Africa and South America, thousands of acres of forests are being destroyed. And those forests are, are replaced by farms. Those farms grow food for cattle. Those cattle are in turn consumed by humans in the Western Hemisphere for the most part and, and Middle Eastern countries. So this animal farming is the single biggest reason or at least one of the biggest reasons that is causing climate change. The amount of water that is, is wasted and, and consumed in raising animal for humans to consume their beef. That is the single biggest reason for climate change. So that's where I think going back to promote this question, the, the biggest contribution I think that, that Hindus can make, Hindus are the biggest number of vegetarians across the world. And I realize that not everybody and not all Hindus are 100% vegetarians all the time. Uh, but for the most part, our main diet is dal and roti, dal and chawal. Go to north, south, east, west, rice and roti and dal and sabji, vegetables and fruits. These are our 90% of Hindus depend on that diet. So for the most part, even those, even those Hindus that do take eggs, occasional egg or occasional chicken, but that's their kind of a special delicacy, not everyday dal roti. Dal roti is our main diet. So we can say that for the most part, Hindus form the biggest number of vegetarians across the world in the history of humankind. So that is our, I think, single biggest contribution in the 
in this discussion and debate about climate change. That's where we have to really speak more, more confidently. If anything that can save the world, it is going back to the food that is based on vegetables and fruits and, and uh, lentils and, and grains and, and, and so on. One more interesting uh, information that I'm sure many of you already know, but I'm just reminding and, and sharing again, is that the, even the way we had our rotis for thousands of years was uniquely Indic, right? So our roti was not just based on gehu, not just based on wheat, but it was based on multigrain, which is now becoming so popular, at least in this country, multigrain wheat, multigrain flour is, is where it's becoming more popular. But in Himalayas, where I went back for my second book, research for my second book, I found that Jwar and Jaw and Bajra and Makkah, all were, all are still being mixed. And that's how they make the roti and that's the roti that they eat every day without using the word multigrain. So those are the powerful living traditions of India that have sustained the farms for thousands of years, that have sustained the life for thousands of years. So all those ideas are uniquely Indic and that have to be shared more powerfully, more proudly, more profoundly by all of us, right? Not just scholars and not just professional academician, but, but everyday Indian, when they are avoiding meat and avoiding egg and, and avoiding a single grain of wheat and choosing multigrain, choosing vegetables, choosing fruits, we are making a statement. We are doing our part already to be more climate conscious, more nature uh, conscious and so on. So those are, I think, very, very, uh, very inspiring and very educational message that every Hindu, every Indian can make, whoever is choosing vegetarian, not just out of, of fashion, but out of their conscious dharmic life in everyday life. That is, I think, the statement that we can make. Let's take one more question here from Anish Gokhale. You spoke of sacred farms. I remember attending a lecture where the speaker spoke of Vanras, groves near a village. So sacred groves have different names in different languages across India. It's not just a, as some Western scholars say that the Sanskrit or Brahmanistic or Brahman, Brahmanic value. So sacred grove is not just what Brahmins preached in Upanishads, but sacred grove has a Tamil word, has a Kannada word, has a Rajasthani word, has a Uttarakhand um, uh, Kumau word and uh, uh, Gadwali word. Every language has a different word for sacred grove. So it's not just a Sanskrit uh, concept. So the question is, these were regarded as sacred, had many practical uses, prevented ero erosion, provided firewood, etc. many disappearing. So what can be done to arrest these uh, vanras from dis disappearing? Yes, I think vanras probably is a word in Marathi. Uh, I'm just assuming, uh, guessing. So yes, so again, so to save any of our sacred resources, which are also environmental resources, forests and sacred groves and rivers, and just Mother Earth in general. I think we have to, again, just keep saying that dharma is not separate from ecology. Dharma is ecology. Dharma is sustainability, as I was trying to explain in the early part of Facebook Live today. Dharma comes from the sacred uh, Sanskrit root dhri, which means to sustain. To sustain dharma is to sustain or to practice sustainability. So dharma is what sustains the environment. Dharma is uh, sustainability. As much as we can repeat this mantra, we will sustain and, and protect our sacred groves, our rivers, our animals, our food, and our life in general. And more we speak and, and, and save our own uh, resources, we will make a global statement across the world, and that's where I think we can contribute. Uh, yes, so Anish Gokhale confirmed, Vanrai is the word for sacred grove in Marathi. So these are some of the ideas of all that, uh, that I wanted to share from the first book. Let me speak a little bit on so my second book. 
So second book, uh, for the second book, I got the Fulbright Fellowship from the State Department in, in America, but that is also co-funded by the Indian government. So it's called as Fulbright Nehru uh, Fellowship, co-funded by the, uh, the government of India and government of, of United States. Incidentally, Fulbright is a fellowship program that gives funding for researchers from India to come to United States and other countries to do their research and vice versa. So I got, I got this, uh, this fellowship as a US citizen to go to India and do research in Himalayas. So I chose Himalayas for my second book, which I absolutely loved. Uh, that gave me a chance to do my uh, little Chardham Yatra, Badrinath Kedarnath Gangotri and just lifetime memories. And if anybody has still not gone, especially those who are in India, to Badrinath and Kedarnath and Gangotri and Yamunotri, you must do, leave everything aside and just do first, your first sacred duty towards your motherland, towards your dharma, do your Chardham Yatra first. Go to Varanasi, go to Ilabad, go to Uttarakhand and go to Himalayas. Not just for rituals, as, as we just shared, but go and see how that small movement back in 1970s started by women of Uttarakhand called, that became Chipko movement. That saved, that single uh, effort by women of Uttarakhand must have saved millions and millions of Devdar trees, Chi trees, pine trees across Himalayas. And even today, if you see any greenery on Himalayas, it is thanks to the women of Uttarakhand of Chipko Andolan. The word Chipko basically, uh, incidentally, Chipko means to hug the trees, right, to embrace the trees. But that apparently some scholars uh, have made that connection that even Chipko word comes from the, that example of hugging the trees that comes from the first ever hugging the, the tree that happened by the Bishnois of Rajasthan in 1700, 1730. There was uh, an incident where the emperor of, of Jodhpur needed to, some firewood and he sends his soldiers to the village of Bishnoi because he knew, or probably soldiers knew, that if, we, if they can get any firewood, it would be the Bishnoi villages. Uh, otherwise, in desert, you cannot get any firewood, right, because of the desert. But when, he, when they go to the Bishnoi village, the women of Bishnoi, Amrita Devi, the name that, is, that comes in the Bishnoi uh, poetry and Bishnoi literature, Amrita Devi, Amrita Devi literally hugs her tree, Khejri tree, Rajasthan, and she saves that tree, but she is killed. And with her, more than 300 people are killed by the soldiers of Jodhpur Emperor. And so that was the first incidence where somebody literally hugged their tree. That inspiration of hugging the tree became the inspiration in the Chipko Andolan in Uttarakhand. So how you see Uttarakhand and Rajasthan are connected. Uh, so Chipko movement was in 1970s that has saved and continues to save thousands and thousands of uh, trees across Himalayas. But my research was not on Chipko. Chipko, a lot of people had already done research. But the legacy of Chipko, in the legacy of Chipko, there is another movement called HESCO. Now HESCO is not an Hindi word. HESCO comes from an acronym in English called Himalayan Environmental Studies and Conservation Organization. What HESCO is doing is, is, is is so interesting. They are they are a group of scientists. They are not ritualists or they are not religious gurus or, or, or leaders, but they're all scientists. They're botanists, they're uh, forest scientists, and so on, uh, geologists. So these scientists have come together, left their scientific labs, and they go across the village, villages in Uttarakhand and other parts of Himalayas, and they apply their scientific knowledge with us, with the uh, 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 indigenous scientific knowledge that already existed in Himalayas. So long before Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity in America, women in Uttarakhand, women in, in Himalayas 
were already using the electric power that was generated by the their own wooden turbines that were connected on the waterfalls of Himalayas. So as water is falling uh, in these uh, rivers and waterfalls in Himalayas, it's just so emotional, it makes me still emotional how these women did. So uh, those turbines running from water of Himalayan rivers would produce enough energy that will make them, that will give them flower from the, the grain that they're growing in their own forest, in their own farms. So the wheat they will collect, I mean, yeah, wheat they will collect and amaranth and jar and jaw and so on, that they will collect from their own farms, multigrain farms as, as, we, as we spoke, right? And that wheat will be taken to these, uh, what they call as gharat, gharat is a word. Uh, so these, these wooden turbines connected to the water of these rivers and, and waterfalls would produce this enough energy that they can get the flower from this. So this scientific tradition that existed in the Himalayan villages that were sort of dying out because of the colonial practices where so-called in the name of modernity and, and Western uh, uh, science, these ancient uh, wisdom was being lost and, and, and getting destroyed. So Hesco people, they went to these thousands of villages across Himalayas and revived these gharats. They, because of their scientific background, they also uh, applied some scientific information. Into it. So wooden turbines were, I think, uh, replaced yeah, with some steel turbines, for example, and how smaller and better design of these turbines can be made and given to the women of, uh, across Himalayas so that they don't have to depend on the you know, electricity board from, from UP or Uttarakhand, but they have their own electricity that they can get from free electricity from their water from Himalayas. So that is one example that they're doing, that they're doing across Himalayas. So that has become a focus of my second book. That the, the second book also came out in January 2017. Uh, so producing electricity, uh, recharging the Himalayan rivers. So here BARC, we know Bhabha Atomic Research, Bhabha Atomic Research Center in, in Mumbai. Scientists of BARC joined hands with scientists of HESCO in Uttarakhand and they used the isotope technology, nuclear technology, to find the uh, origin of a waterfall. How do you recharge a river? So water that you collect on the plains is coming from somewhere in the top from, on, in, from the Himalayas. So they will match the isotope of water on the, on the, on the plains with the isotope of water on the, at the origin on the, uh, on the mountain top. So wherever that isotope match matches, that part of the uh, origin will be recharged and they will construct a small check dam and so on to save the water enough for the entire season so that water keeps coming for the entire season, entire year. So that kind of recharging of rivers is being done by HESCO scientists, HESCO people across Himalayas again uh, and, and many other things. So, and they revive traditional farming, for example, uh, to do some experiments, uh, seeds, to save the seeds, experiments with the seeds and give those seeds that are that might be endangered. So collect those seeds and distribute across the villages in, in Uttarakhand and across the Himalayas and to revive the traditional farming. That is another uh, effort that HESCO scientists are doing. So all those uh, experiments I saw firsthand in hundreds of villages across Uttarakhand. I went to almost every district in Uttarakhand, Kumau, Almoda, Nanital, uh, in Gadwal, Badrinath, Kedarnath, and so on. Oh, other thing that they're doing is, uh, so what was happening was in Badrinath, for example, and Gangotri, the prasad that has been given to the devotees, so anybody who goes for darshan to Badrinath, the prasad will come from cities, thousands of miles uh, far from uh, the villages of Badrinath. So what Hesco did is to revive the, the village 
resources. So, so forests uh, in Himalayas are already producing a lot of fruits. But those fruits were going wasted. What HESCO did is collect those fruits and process those fruits and, and make jams and pickles and prasads for the temples so that village economy flourishes. And that prasad can be given to the, uh, that, that fruit, uh, processed fruits can be given as prasads to the devotees that are coming to Badrinath, Kedanath, Gangotri and so on. So that's another project that HESCO is doing successfully, successfully at Vaishnodevi also in Himachal Pradesh, for example. So those are the examples that, that has, that those are the efforts that, that HESCO is doing. So that became uh, one of the focus in my second book. Other uh, chapter that I have in, uh, also in second book is of, from Punjab. And Punjab, again, like many rivers across India, one river was dying away, was already dead. The river where Guru Nanak attained his enlightenment, where, you know, probably you know this legend connected with Guru Nanak's life that he uh, goes inside the water for several days, more than one day at least. And then uh, he attains this enlightenment and then he comes out from the water and says, there is no Hindu, there is no Muslim. There is one Omkar, Ek Omkar, right? That's the first beginning of the Guru Granth Sahib also, I think. Uh, so, so where he attained the enlightenment, that river, that sacred river was dead. But thanks to this one contemporary Sikh Guru, uh, Baba Sichewal, that's a place name also Sichewal. So he single-handedly, he himself entered the river and cleared the river water. He started clearing himself that entire river. And with his example, with his being the role model, thousands of his followers also joined him and they cleared the entire river, the river called Kali Bain near, uh, near Shakot in, in Punjab, uh, near uh, after Ludhiana. So I went there also and met that Baba, Baba Sichewal. He took us in a boat ride uh, with my friend Gaurav and, and we both sat in that boat and took the boat ride and, and we were so impressed, so inspired to see absolutely clear water that single-handedly cleared, where government efforts fail, where uh, uh, NGO, so-called NGO efforts fail, spiritual gurus by their role model, by their inspiration, they uh, inspired his hundreds of followers and they together they cleared this, uh, cleaned this entire river. So that's also one of the chapters in my second book. So we talked about so many communities, it has been almost one hour now. So we talked about Swadhyay, Vishnuis and Bhils in the first book. And we talked about Hesco and uh, Sikh, Baba Sichewal's Sikh community in Punjab. So these are the five powerful examples that are, uh, that are successfully saving and protecting the natural resources, rivers and forests and farming and water and whatnot across India, Uttarakhand, Punjab, Rajasthan, Gujarat and so on. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a question from Sahana Singh Ji, would love to see a picture of the turbines you mentioned. Yeah, so you can go to this website I'll share. Hesco.in to see examples from, sorry, Hesco. Uh, in. And that should have some pictures and some more details on the work that Hesco is doing. Uh, second one, sorry, Hesco. Just Google for this, Hesco. Okay, and, uh, and uh, yeah, so that link is available. Uh, my own book again is available, available at manoharbooks.com, uh, uh, Dharma Ecology of Hindu Communities. Uh, what else we talked? So for Uttarakhand, you will have to Google for Baba, uh, sorry, for Punjab, for Baba Sichewal. I'll give you the Facebook link here. And for Swadhyay, you can see this page. 
uh, or of course my own book or on Vishnuis, you can Google for Vishnuis. You can easily find a lot of information on Bheel sacred groups. You can search for these words or again, uh, so Swadhyay Bheel and Vishnuis are part of my first book. Tesco and uh, Baba Sichewal as part of my second book. So everything is available on amazon.com or uh, anybody who are connected with any libraries in any college, you can request your librarians to get that book and they will get for you uh, anywhere in the world. As I uh, shared, the first book has entered more than 1000 libraries across the world. Any course on religion ecology uses that book. Uh, so from Australia to Africa to America, uh, all over that book has become a required book. Uh, any other question? If not, I think we'll stop here. Uh, I spoke a lot, I think, and tried to share as much as I could in one hour uh, based on both the books. So with that, I think I'll stop and thank you and namaste.